Hey everyone, Eric here. Before we get to our discussion today with Dixon David Agbaji from Beijing University, I wanted to remind you about becoming a China Africa Project subscriber. Only by being a subscriber will you get access to all of the great content that's on our website, including the daily news feed, the China Africa Experts Network, and exclusive analysis that helps you make sense of all the issues. You'll also get our daily email newsletter, which is by far the most comprehensive digest of China Africa news that you'll find anywhere. To find out more, visit ChinaAfricaProject.com/slash/subscribe, and be sure to use the promo code Podcast for a special offer of one month free with your annual subscription. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com/slash/subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we have talked at length about the growing population of African students who are going to China for education. In fact, they just had a university fair in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa, where Chinese universities came to recruit students, and it was hugely popular. And what stood out about it was the fact that Chinese universities are actually going to Africa to recruit students. Uh, this is not really a phenomenon that I, as far as I know, and I, maybe I'm missing something here, that U.S. and European students, uh, universities are doing there. And it's something that we hear the cries out of Washington from people like Aubrey Ruby, who we've interviewed many times on this show, and other African advocates and policy analysts to say that the U.S. is missing out on a huge opportunity about not engaging African students to come and study in the United States as they used to, but now in the United States, of course, uh, not only Africans, but it's more difficult for all foreign students to get visas and scholarships and whatnot. And the key issue here is the connections that young people are making at a very formidable time in their、uh, in their lives that will then stay with them for the rest of their lives. And I want Kobus to read you. Uh, part of an admissions essay, and this is what really makes it real, that、uh, our guest today, who we're going to speak to, wrote about his admission to a、uh, to a university in Beijing. He said, "My admission into Beijing University's Yanqing Academy is a feat I will treasure all my life because it is a dream come true. Also, it will be a novel experience for me as I have never been outside the Nigerian borders." Just as my classmate stated over five years ago, the 21st century is the Chinese century. I cannot think of a better place to study. Kobus, that is it right there, and that is going to be going to pay geopolitical dividends for the Chinese for decades and decades and decades, as tens of thousands of African students really share that same sentiment. Yes,、um, you know it's 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 amazing to think that、um, at the moment the only country. Uh, that has more African students than China is France,、um, and the you know there's more African students in in China than in the UK and the US combined,、uh, 
and this is this is really it really does shape the future it, it doesn't only you know mean that that the kind of future elite is that their thinking is shaped by China but also that they get to know all kinds of other compatriots from other African countries in China you know so it's essentially the the very the very network becomes lo- located in China and I think it's very important to make clear that there is a very wide range of the quality of education in China. Not every African student who goes to China has a good experience or is coming back with a useful degree. In fact, in South Africa, there was some reporting by one of your independent media uh, news outlets that said that a lot of African students or South African students are going and getting really just junk degrees. The professors don't speak English very well. The programs aren't very well thought out. So this is not a universal phenomenon. But where we are talking about at the elite universities like Beijing universities, Fudan University, Tsinghua University, that is not the case. They are getting excellent, excellent educations there. And one of the students there is Dixon David Agbaji, who is a Nigerian student and pursuing a master's in China studies at Beijing University's prestigious Yenqing Academy, where he's studying political economy and Mandarin. He did his undergraduate degree at the University of Calabar in Nigeria, and he's co-authored several uh, journal articles and published journal articles on corruption, security, development, and foreign policy. And we are so grateful that he joins us on his lunch break from the campus of Beijing University. Dixon, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Hey, hello, Eric. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so honored. Well, we are honored to have you on the program. I think what you should do maybe just to start is is just give us a brief introduction what we call your China story. I read a little bit of your essay there about what kind of got you excited about going to China, but we'd like to hear a little bit more about what was the the initial motivation for you to study in China, what your parents thought of it, and and, and just give us a little bit of an introduction to who you are and what uh, what brought you to Beijing. Okay, so first, uh, one of the first exposures I had uh, to to the Chinese society was uh, through movies. So I got fascinated by watching films like uh, Kung Fu Panda. So I, I've always had this idea that, oh, these Chinese guys, their culture is very unique and I'd love to experience it on a one-on-one basis. So I got into the University of Calabar and we started discussing about... Um, communism, Marxism, and uh, other uh, theories that can explain the political economy of countries. And I got interested in the fact that Chinese, the Chinese uh, society is very unique in the sense that even though it ha- adopted systems like, uh, like the Soviet Union, even after the Soviet Union crumbled, it still existed, which, uh, which was like mind-blowing. And I was like, okay, no, I just have to be in this place. So I started studying. I started uh, reading up books about the Chinese society. Then I think, uh, yeah, we wrote some articles about uh, China, basically. And um, I think that was what spurred my interest for uh, to come down to Beijing to study. So it was first fascination and now a research interest. So, so when you um, when you applied um, to to go to study in China, um, what kind of of education did you have in mind? Like, what 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 differentiated the Chinese education system from from those in other countries, and what made it special for you? So, for me, uh, China has uh, a very huge role to play in the world in the coming years. So, I thought that what better place to study if you'd want to remain relevant in the world to come? Why not just go to China and understand how the Chinese system works, how the Ch- uh, Communist Party works, and China's relationship, especially with Africa? So, I saw uh, Beijing as the, ideal, as the ideal place. Secondly, there is like this international base of our students, and um, 
the the Laoshi's the professors here who teach. So they they have like different uh, vast areas of um, expertise that they can you know bring in different ideas to spore classes and also spore uh, thoughts of uh, the students. So I felt well. With this international curriculum and a student base, I can learn more, I can develop myself, grow my network, and you know, become very relevant in the nearest future. So that's what really uh, captured my mind towards Beijing, and I think that is what is quite different from what we have outside. So you have like a rising power that is trying its best to you know, beat America, so it's like, oh, I just need to be here. In, in places like uh, in South Africa, I've, I've had a chance to to talk to a lot of students at Wits University, where Cobus used to uh, to teach, and also at University of Nairobi, and certainly in the U.S., we associate uh, university with really a, a wide range of ideas that get thrown out onto the table, hashed out. Some are contentious, some are controversial, some are sensitive, and in places like Kenya or South Africa or the United States, there's not really much concern about any consequences of talking about those things. That's not the case in China. Uh, in China, there are things that we can talk about, and there are certain things, well, we can't talk about. I'm not going to get into it here because I don't want to provoke anybody, but we all know what those things are that we can't <laughs> talk about. And so I guess I'm curious about when you when you talk about the kind of education that you're getting there, is it difficult for you to navigate some of the politics in China that make those kind of open discussions that you are familiar with in Nigeria and very common in Nigeria, but now you come to China and you have to be a little bit more sensitive to the topics that are that are controversial yeah yeah i, I understand you i understand you hey, uh, that's the case here that's the case here. it's not every it's not every issue we need to like we we have access to because of limited information and uh, i have this idea at the back of my mind that i'm coming to <clears throat> to a new <clears throat> excuse me please so I'm coming to a new environment. So they have value structures already put in place. They have uh, a system that, that that is working for them already. So if uh, there if there are issues that I don't need to go, I don't need to uh, you know look into. And then like there's this censorship about those issues. Then there's no need for me even looking into them. China is a very big place. So there are other there are other research interests, there are other research areas I can you know I can venture into. There, there's a reason why their system is placed that way. And for me, it works for them. So I think. Well, if the people are not complaining that much, so I, I don't see any reason. But I'm, I, I'm enjoying my time so far here. It's very revealing. The students from different countries are bringing in their different perspectives. And to me, that's what really matters going forward. You know, just one more question about about the, the curriculum. Um, the in, in many cases in, in, in universities in China, um, students are required to also study Xi Jinping thought. And it's, it's increasingly, you know, because it's, but you know, has has been implemented in in the writings of the party. It's also supposed to be taught in some educational institutions, as far as I understand. Do you also study that? Um, and what what is that like? Okay, for now, no, I've not uh, ventured into Xi, Jinping, uh, Xi Jinping's thoughts. I've not done that yet. But what we have been doing so far has been like tracing China's history from uh, the ancient era to the 20th century where you know they had the civil wars and other things with the rise of the CCP up until the reformist uh, periods by Deng Xiaoping and then up to this particular period but I've heard uh, instances of uh, you know the study of uh, Xi's thoughts that, that that notwithstanding I think it's more like for people to or for the you know Chinese to get a, a basic understanding of what the system is like what their president what their number one 
man thinks about you know China going forward, the rise of China. Xi Jinping keeps talking about um, the the you know the Belt and Road new initiatives where uh, China is you know would play a major role in the world. With America declining a little bit, you know taking uh, a backseat a little bit in certain issues, it is up to China to come out strong to say okay, assert its position. And I think this is influenced by two major factors: the size of its economy and the size of its uh, the its population and okay a third one and its technological base so i think um it's just for people to understand what the, percep the perception of their leader is in the uh, current global system let's pick up the conversation on perceptions because i think that's a really important part of uh, of all of this because you are somebody who sits in the middle where obviously you're expert in your home country in nigeria and you've written a lot about it and you've you know excelled there academically and now you're in China, where you're bringing a different type of expertise and you're interacting with students. And one of the things that I find so interesting is that in China, oftentimes people have a very distorted view of the outside world, in part because it's been shaped by a highly restricted media. People get to see only what the Communist Party and what official media allows people to see. It's not an open, dynamic, free media like you have in Nigeria. Similarly, in Nigeria and other parts of Africa, and I would say this also extends to the U.S. and Europe as well, people have a very distorted view of China that is oftentimes filtered through social media or uh, you know, the negative narrative that we've talked about for many, many years here. It's not a, a holistic type of view. And you are someone who sits in the middle. Talk to me a little bit about you confronting in class and with your professors and your classmates, both African, international, and uh, Chinese, about those different perceptions of the other. And tell us a little bit about how those conversations go that you have on campus. Okay, so uh, I'll just start a little bit backwards. So um, before coming down to China, uh, I, I was thinking, oh, the Chinese system, even with how fascinated I've been about it, like their food, uh, the restrictions, and I'm like, oh, how would I survive here? But coming down here, I realized that things are quite different. My perception has changed about China drastically, especially with their food. And then coming to classes where you, you, you'd interact with professors who are, you know, experts in their fields, and then you, you ask certain questions and they're like, they tell you their perception, their, their, their perspective about that particular, that particular issue. So it's not like uh, we, we have like um, a China-centric view of everything we're discussing in class. No, not at all. We have different perspectives because, so if the, if the lecturers are, you know, giving us just a, a China-centric view, it's, it's, it's won't, it won't make sense, especially to the American students in, uh, in class, because I think they're like one of the most, um, audible students in class, so they, they keep, they, they're very critical of the Chinese system and they're like, you know, they keep posing questions and lecturers keep answering based on the, the perception of what the situation is like. So we're not giving an entirely China-centric view, no, we're, we're giving different perspectives. So it's like leading us through what China believes, what the world believes, make your decision. So that, that's the way our, our, our classes have been so far. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Witt's China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. 
So in, in spending time in China, um, frequently when one spends time overseas, especially when you're studying, it changes your perspective on your own country as well. Um, so what has um, spending time in China, how has it changed your perceptions of Nigeria? Oh, I, I <laughs> it's been very interesting here. I, I, I came in here and I was like, oh boy, these guys are so developed in just 30 years. Like, I... I what I've been thinking about China from from home is quite different from what I'm seeing here. Like I came here and I was like, oh, I'm looking out for potholes and I've not seen potholes. And I know in Nigeria, like there are potholes within potholes at home. So you know the the the, the construction, the develop the, the development rate of China has been amazing. Secondly, is uh, how hospitable the people are here. Uh, as a foreigner, and you know, I before coming here, I have zero proficiency of uh, Mandarin. So it's like. People who can speak English are always uh, available to help you out, you know, like to just ensure that you, you find your way, you navigate your way through through Beijing. Secondly, is a, uh, thirdly rather, it's a polit uh, politically, though their system is a closed system, you just have one party system, but it's working. That's, I, I, I keep discussing with my colleagues from Nigeria and I'm like, it's working, it's working for them. In 30 years, this party has taken them away from a very poor region to the second largest economy, pulling over 700 million with uh, as the as the economy grows, so I think it's working. So we need to design a system in, within Nigeria that would also take cognizance of the different aspects that determine Nigerians' politics, like economy and religion. Because what we just do at home is we copy and paste. Oh, this system is working in America. Let's copy and we paste without you know bringing in what really makes Nigeria unique. That's what is different from China. They have a political system that is so unique to themselves. They have unique Chinese characteristics within their political system, and it is really working for them. So I, I think for me, majorly, it's on the political scene, it's just quite different from what we have in Nigeria. It's interesting that you say, you kind of speak favorably of the Chinese political system, in part because it's a dictatorship or an authoritarian country um, by this, the Communist Party. Uh, those are words that they use themselves. Um, but that's what it is. And there is no free media. There is no multi-party system. Nigeria itself in the 70s and 80s used to be a dictatorship as well under military governments. And it still didn't work. And so I'm curious, you know, what are the specifics? I mean, it's obvious that you and, and a lot of people go to China and they see this incredible infrastructure. By the way, I have to say, Americans now go to China and look at the infrastructure and go, holy cow. When they see the mobile payments, they see the bullet trains, they see the highways. I mean, it's it's better than the infrastructure we have in many parts of the U.S. So that's not just an African phenomena anymore, which is very interesting as well. But that being said, what do you think practically can be brought out of the Chinese political system into a system that is as vibrant, dynamic, chaotic, confrontational as the Nigerian system is? Okay, first I would say it's... Uh a party structure, though I don't, I'm not a, a supporter of a, uh, an autocratic regime or authoritarian regime. I, I believe that freedom of uh, speech and other freedoms uh, like need to be available. Like You need to give the people the opportunity to select their leaders. But something that stands out in the Chinese system is that they think of the people more. So it's more like whatever they're doing, their projects, 
the thinking of how far the Chinese economy can go, how can the people improve. Now, studying here so far, I've learned two things, that the Chinese perception of rights is quite different from the American and uh, probably other Western perceptions of rights. So in America, in Europe, when you hear of rights, you're thinking of uh, you know, the fundamental human rights, freedom to life, you know, association, uh, to just uh, freedom of speech, free media, and other things. But here in China, I've noticed they're just surrounded by two basic things, sustenance and development. Can this new government policy ensure that there's development in my area, there's development in my region, there's infrastructure, there are trains, local rural areas are connected to the urban areas and then would this government policy give me more money into my pockets would i have more food to eat so those are the two things that, are, that i have noticed that the chinese are much more concerned about it's more more like an economic idea so they have the interest of the people and whatever policy they bring they attach these two indices to it to show the people that okay whatever we're doing you it would improve your lives and it will also enrich your pockets. So I think this this is something that the Nigerian government should you know bear bear in mind while uh, while moving forward and the fact that they should also think of the indices that makes Nigeria unique that can never ever 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 be separated from the Nigerian system if you want to talk about it, which include religion and ethnicity. Um, how would you like to see the relationship between China and Nigeria develop in the future? Like like which particular fields do you think? Uh, China, you know, Chinese involvement would really help Nigeria into into the future. Okay, so I between two thousand and two and uh, twenty eighteen, China's investment in Nigeria has grown over six hundred percent. So at two thousand and two, it was at uh, I think two billion US dollars, and now it's about over thirteen billion US dollars. So China is really, you know, putting in a lot of effort into Nigeria. And then uh, I think I read a report, was not two days ago, um, about from the Global Attitude Survey. It says that Nigeria now has the second highest. Um, perception, good perception of China. So Nigeria stood at 61 as at last year and now it's at 70. I think Russia was at 65 and now it's at 71. So it's just one point behind Russia. So there's like this percep good perception of Nigeria, of China, and China's increasing investments within Nigeria. So I believe that going forward, uh, one major area China can invest in Nigeria, you know, to to ensure that their relationship are quite sustainable is in the area of trade. So. Um, Nigeria's oil is very essential for the Chinese economy so because of the steady electricity here and other projects that are there, the Chinese government embark on. So it's, it's more like to help the Chinese government sustain its economy and also bring in uh, uh, increased revenue into Nigeria. Then the other, uh, the other aspect is infrastructure development. China has been working tirelessly within the uh, infrastructure uh, to build, develop the infra infrastructure uh, sector in Nigeria, constructing roads, uh, rail, railways, and uh, other things, seaports. Now we have the free trade zone within um, Lagos and Ogun State. So these are ways to ensure that um, Chinese companies come into uh, Nigeria. They produce their they produce their goods and then you know sell out to other areas. So it's more like increasing Nigeria's industrial base. So it's more like diversifying Nigeria's economy, taking it away from um, petroleum to other areas like um, you know manufacturing and agriculture. So I think these are two basic areas where um, going forward Nigeria-China relationship can you know be further improved. And there's also the cultural aspect. Sorry, please. There's also the cultural aspects to it. So you're you're having increasing uh, Chinese um, chi um, 
Chinese cultures into Nigeria. You have now we have I think uh, two Confucius institutes in Nigeria. Well, I know one is in the University of Nigeria, and then um, they have other four Chinese institutes uh, around Nigeria. I'm not specific of their location. So there's also the importation of Chinese culture into Nigeria, and I think going forward, th these areas would be very essential. So it's clear that there's a lot of excitement on your part towards what you're seeing in China and also what China is doing in uh, in Nigeria. So that's okay. We we've established that. What's interesting I want to pick up a little bit on is is what how do you feel about the United States? Because the United States oftentimes positions itself as a rival of China and there is a a battle for hearts and minds in Africa for young people like you that you know and we think as Americans that our soft power is unrivaled because Beyonce uh, you know, Jay-Z, all of the different soft power culture that we bring into Akon, you know, you name it, anything that we bring, movies, music, culture, all of that. But there's a big difference between people liking Jay-Z and people liking American policy. And so I'm curious about, as you're learning about China now, and even you're interacting with American students in Beijing at, your, at Beijing University, what are your views of the United States and and how it engages with Africa? And because you wrote in your essay, um, the 21st century is the Chinese century, quoting one of your classmates, um, that implies that it's not the American century anymore. And that comes as a shock for many people listening in Washington to this program. So tell us a little bit about your views, good, bad, and ugly, of U.S. power in Nigeria and in Africa as it relates to the Chinese. America lost its position as Nigeria's um, largest exporter of oil, and then America, uh, China came in. I just want to make us three comments. Number one is this. America and China, looking back, share similar qualities. America in the late 19th centuries, uh, early 20th centuries, was seen like the perception of China right now is quite similar to how Europe viewed America. So you'd hear things like then, that you hear things like, okay, uh, fake products come from, or inferior products come from America, or that um, the intellectual property rights, America was not, you know, holding on to its own side of international uh, intellectual, poly, uh, intellectual property rights. And then at the peak of its own development, America hosted the its first Olymp Olympic Games. The same thing here will have the same uh, scenario is playing out here in China in this 21st century. China hosted the uh, Beijing 2008 Olympic Games. China is also seen as not, you know, uh, holding on to uh, intellectual property rights laws and other things. So it's more like they, but they both share similarities in their development. But looking at the America's soft power in Africa, Nigeria to be precise, it's it's weakening. It's weakening because I now there's a lot more interest towards uh, China because of the, you can look at issues like the South-South cooperation. So it's more like uh, um, African countries see China as like like a brother, let me put it that way. Like the, it, because of this close relationship between the Chinese government and other African leaders. And then there's also this increased investment there in Africa. I'm not saying that the American soft power is not effective enough, but it is winning, uh, it is winning, like weakening. And then uh, the Chinese, on the other hand, are increasing how uh, how they get into Africa, how they penetrate into Africa. So there's increased money. There there uh, there are institutions, you know, educational institutions come uh, being established here and there. So it's 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 penetrating. It's it's even though it's small, but it's growing at rapacious rate. 
aside America that is quite, uh, you know, reducing its um, its investment in Africa. Let me put it that way. So I think that's what really marks them out differently. Both countries have similarities in their rise, and I think the Chinese. In fact, I don't just think. I believe the Chinese economy would surpass the American's uh, economy in the, in the in the years to come. Um, you know, when when you speak with Africans um, in Africa about China, um, there is frequently quite negative narratives. Um, you know, the the most famous one being, oh, China's just here to exploit Africa. China's just here to to kind of even to kind of colonize Africa for you know again. Um, so, what do those narratives look like to you from the perspective of actually living in China at the moment? First of all, I think those are. Myths that I think one of the most interesting myths about uh, Africa, China Africa relation is uh, the land grabbing myth that oh, uh, China comes to own African lands to grow food for China, why also using Chinese farmers? But on the contrary, I think I was reading uh, a report by uh, what's she called? Um, Deborah Boutingham. I'm not, I'm not very sure of the name. So she, uh, she, she was um, the director for China Africa's research initiative at John Hopkins University and then she shows what she mentioned in the in the report was this that it's uh, it's the contrary that's not what China is doing as a matter of fact the private firms the private bodies that are involved in farming and you know other landed activities within Africa keep complaining of the limited support they get from the Chinese government and uh, the purpose for their investments that happen are not even connected to you know the land grabbing as a matter of fact but it's connected to uh, commodities so you have um, investments in cuttings rubbers and sugar so that's that's on the one, that's on the one hand so I, I don't think uh, China is like trying to colonize Africa. As a matter of fact, it's helping to improve our economy, which is very, very crucial for us. Now, it's about improving the industrial base in, in Nigeria, improving agricultural, uh, the agricultural sector. Now, there are, there are agricultural firms, especially, let me give you an instance, uh, Green Agriculture West Africa Limited. So they are currently operating within uh, Nigeria, and they've been operating since 2006, setting up farms in places like Kebi, Niger State, Jigawa, Abuja, just to boost food production and then to teach local farmers the best uh, farming practices. So it's more like a win-win scenario for, for China. And then there's another, um, I think one of the major issues is addressing the trade imbalance within, within the relationship between China and Nigeria or other African countries. So it's, I think it's best in the interest of the Chinese the Chinese government and Chinese firms to like come into Africa to produce their goods instead of producing in China and then exporting into Africa. It's it's a lot more costly. It's it's expensive, right? So that's why we have um, different um, trade zones within Africa to help with uh, proximity and also bringing in Chinese firms. So what we need to do, as a matter of fact, as Africans, is to remove some barriers that would help uh, the Chinese firms operate well within Africa or within Nigeria once they come in. So I don't think it's like recolonizing Africa, no. It's just a win-win scenario. What do you want to do after you graduate, when you go back to Nigeria? What's, what's your plan? Okay, so I am somebody who is interested in teaching. I I think I would I think I would make money. I think I would make my money from talking. <laughs> so so I would uh, I would have to I would have to go back to teach. And with my unique experience in China, uh, I think I, I should be able to bring something to the table to you know to to impact people to give like a new perspective of what China is like. Especially in my alma mater, the University of Calabar. If I'm to work there, that would mean like I'm. 
I'm the only one in my, that would mean that I'll be the only one in my department, say political science, to have an extensive knowledge on uh, Af uh, China, Africa's, or uh, China, Nigeria's relations. And I think that that would be, that would be very ideal. Secondly is uh, into uh, NGOs. Um, somebody who's interested in climate change issues. Uh, I think um, one of the one of one of my next research here in China will be the AIIB's role in the climate change agenda because one of the reasons why uh, America, Japan, and uh, Canada, except uh, it changed its mind, I think in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to become founding members of the AIB was because of some environmental issues. So I, I'm interested in learning what China's role is like on the environmental front. Well, we wish you the very best of luck in all of that. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and very, very exciting to hear about your experiences at the Yenjing Academy, Yenjing Academy at Beijing University. Dixon David Agbaji is a Nigerian student, master's student in Beijing at the prestigious Yenjing Academy, where he is studying uh, international relations, economy, economics, and, and basically understanding the Chinese system in a way that he's going to bring it back to Nigeria and bring parts of it and the inspiration for it. And I really, it's just an inspiration for the future of China-Africa relations to see so many young people like you who are actually in the middle of it and doing some really incredible things. So congratulations on that. Hey, Dixon, if people want to get in touch with you, are you on social media for them to, to reach out and say hello? Yes, yes, yes. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, Twitter. My Twitter handle is Dixon Agbaji. My name on Facebook is Dixon David Agbaji. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can just check Dixon David Agbaji. So it's just basically Dixon David Agbaji. Once you type that in, you you. Fantastic. And we'll put links to all of your social media uh, channels on our in the show notes and on our website. So if people want to reach out and say hello and connect with you and start some networking for you ahead of your graduation, that would be great. Once again, your lunch break is almost over. So our time is up. And we really, really are grateful that you took some time off of, uh, you know, from studies to speak with us. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. Gobis, I... Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm laughing because as I was listening to Dixon, about halfway through uh, the conversation, I just, all I could think about in my head was the U.S. and Europe are screwed. Completely, totally, 100% screwed in Africa. There's no, this is, it is as clear as day to me that 10, 15 years from now, okay, it's not something that today. Today, the level of awareness of, of, of China in places like, uh, you know, Nigeria, and even at the political level, is still extraordinarily low. But what's going to happen is this wave of Dixons are going to start coming back to Africa. Graduates from Beijing University, from Tsinghua, from Fudan, from Zhejiang, all these universities are going to start coming back, and they're going to start building up experience like Dixon. And you saw what Dixon was saying and how he was framing things. It was in a very Sinocentric view of the world. He was even saying win-win. And he was talking about things in a very, again, a, a very kind of China-friendly way. And I'm not saying that he's been co-opted or he's been brainwashed. No, 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 no. But he's doing what students do, which is absorb the information that's around him. This is why you have these kind of programs for geopolitical reasons. In 10, 15 years when Dixon is a professor or when he's in politics or whatever, his relationship network will be anchored in China. That's why I think the Americans and some of the Europeans, not all Europeans, the French are still engaged, but the French engagement is in a Francophone world. It's not in an African world. It's a Francophone world. That's very, very different. The Chinese are drawing students from across the continent, from lots of different languages. When I was in Beijing, I met from Togo, from Senegal, from lots of Francophone countries. And in France, 
at Sciences Po and at some of the other universities, you get only Francophone kids. So uh, there's a big difference in that. But I think 10, 15 years out, this is going to pay dividends for the Chinese that they have no idea. And the Americans and the Europeans are making a critical, critical geopolitical mistake by not investing in young people like this. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. It's, you know, it's because the thing is, it's not only that all of these these bright Nigerians um, that are, you know, that are essentially being lost to to the West, if you want to see it that way, but also, you know, when when you know, I've spent time with with these African student communities in China. Um, in a lot of cases, they overcome all of the, the the language barriers that that exist within China by all just using Mandarin as a lingua franca. Um, and, you know, th- so it's a situation where not only individual country, future country elites are, are linked to China, but the very connections between African elites run through China. Um, you know, kind of the way that the way that someone from Cote d'Ivoire and the way that someone from Tanzania would have a connection is via China. And those networks are incredibly valuable. They're going to be valuable for the next for, for decades and decades into the future. Honestly, I get chills listening to this interview because this from this was a this was a different interview for me. It's not what I expected. We've interviewed a number of different students over the years, and and again, there's a certain rhythm to them all. But hearing, you know, Dixon's worldview and how how precise it was, uh, and how he literally in his admissions essay said, "China is the you know is the 21st century is the Chinese century." That, by definition, implies it's no longer the American century. And if, I, if, if anybody who is in the State Department is listening to this show, take Dixon's word very, very seriously. I think he's going to go back to Nigeria. And he, he, again, he said it right up front. You know, the United States used to be Nigeria's largest partner, commercial partner, but it's not anymore. Because the United States, we make our own oil now. We don't need to import from Nigeria as much anymore. But they haven't backfilled it with other forms of engagement. They haven't backfilled it with other forms of commerce. It's not coming. And the Chinese, as he pointed out, are investing heavily into Nigerian infrastructure. Other point that I think is really important to bring up is that he brought up right in the beginning, and you've talked about this, uh, is, is the Chinese soft power methods. So number one, Kung Fu. Ironic that he mentioned Kung Fu Panda, which is an American movie. So the Americans are actually uh-huh. contributing to Chinese soft power inadvertently. That's, there's a certain <laughs> irony there. But Kung Fu is something that's interesting because we've heard Bruce Lee and Kung Fu Panda come up repeatedly. So if I was Chinese propagandists, my advice, unsolicited as it may be, stop with CGTN and all your news that nobody pays attention to and just run Kung Fu movies 24 hours a day and you will then get far more <laughs> bang for your propaganda buck. I mean, clearly that's what people seem to be responding to. Never have we ever heard anybody go, I was inspired to go to China because I was watching a program on CGTN. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, but yet we hear over and over again, it is certain part, there's a slice of Chinese popular culture that really resonates. You wrote a paper on that a few years ago, if I recall. Uh, and then the second thing is the infrastructure as soft power. And I tell you, when I talk to Americans and Europeans, they discount that from start to finish. The fact that there are no potholes in Beijing, or at least on the big streets, there are potholes in Beijing, of course, but you don't see them on the big streets. That right there is a soft power campaign as a marketer. Come to my country. We don't have any potholes. And, but it is a very, very powerful message, that infrastructure diplomacy. 
Yeah, you're so right. It's that that's always the thing that Africans mention when when they come to China, um, and uh, you know it's it's something it's 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 something that I think would be a little bit of a challenge to to actually turn into a public diplomacy message because it's so so easy to make it sound very condescending, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, it's a good point. If one can it turn though. it into into some kind of message, it's going to be a potent message because it's it's the one thing it's the one takeaway that Africans always mention about China. And it's like you, you can't believe it. Like on the trains, the bridges, it's yeah, you know. And I think increasingly, as you said, like I think it's not only it's not only Africans who feel that way. I think anyone who goes to China feels that way. Well, the way you do it is you wouldn't do it as a publicity campaign. You do it what the Chinese are doing right now is they're bringing over Ch- African journalists who just freely write about it and go, "Holy crap, I'm on a train that's going 400 kilometers an hour." Thirty years ago, China was poorer than Africa. That's a story in the eyes of a lot of African journalists. And the more that they do these journalism exchanges and these junkets and these propaganda tours, that will then creep into the body politic. And I think that's what they're already doing. So, wow, that was that was fascinating. I, I really enjoyed that. Hey, listen, if you want to hear more voices of young people, we've got a whole section on our new website called Student Exchange, and it's exactly to do what we heard today which is to get the perspective of people like Dixon. Go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. At the very bottom, you'll see Student Exchange. It's being curated by Jody Ann Wong, who is a student at Kenyon College in the U.S. Uh, so we have a student editor moderating and curating Student Exchange, which is really very neat, and we're sharing it out on our social network. If you would like to be a part of Student Exchange. If you're a student and you have views on China Africa, we would love to hear from you. Just email me, Eric, at ChinaAfricaProject.com, and I'll send it on to Jody Ann. Uh, but this is all part of the new things that we're offering on our website at China Africa Project. Uh, we would love for you to subscribe to our new daily newsletter and also to become a subscriber for China Africa Project because you get access to all of the great content on our website and the China Africa Experts Network. So there's a lot of great information. Uh, subscriptions uh, start at $149 per year, but we have a student rate at uh, 50% off. Just use the promo code STUDENTS. So that's it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Copes and I will be back again next week with another show for Copes van Staden in Johannesburg. I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. 